Hi, it's Jonathan and welcome to episode 56 of Mosin at Large. Apple has released its first ever public beta of watchOS. It shuts out blind people and that's not okay. We hear about changes to audible.com and what it means for blind people and we look at when one web browser isn't enough. Mosin at Large you're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. A couple of days ago, I got an email from Apple. In part, it said, and I quote, The iOS 14, iPadOS 14, macOS Big Sur, tvOS 14, and watchOS 7 public betas are now available. As a member of the Apple Beta Software Program, you can help shape Apple software by test driving pre-release versions and letting us know what you think, unquote. The only trouble is, where watchOS is concerned, that doesn't apply to me or other blind people like me. Some blind people were feeling lenient towards Apple when they released watchOS Developer Beta 4 with VoiceOver not working because it was only going to developers. And that's a small group compared with those who would test publicly. But that said, one thing I didn't point out last week that listeners have mentioned to me over the week is that some people are updated to the inaccessible beta automatically because automatic updates are enabled by default. So once you get yourself on the developer beta track, if you didn't expressly disable automatic updates, the watch will eventually have updated itself and your watch as a blind person would have been bricked. Now the issue escalated to a whole new level when a full week After that inaccessible beta was released to developers, the same build was released as the first ever watchOS public beta. In the release notes of both the developer and public betas, Apple makes it very clear that VoiceOver isn't working and that those who rely on VoiceOver shouldn't upgrade. 
Since those in the watchOS public beta program hadn't yet installed the public beta profile, in some ways it's actually easier for them because they haven't opted in to beta builds at this point. Yet there's still the important issue of participation. Specifically from a voiceover perspective, Apple has released a lot of software in recent years so defective that it has seriously impeded the productivity, independence, and even the safety of some blind people. There is a significant problem with voiceover quality assurance at Apple. So even though I might be optimistic in thinking that our bug reports actually matter, actually make a difference, the time blind people have lost to report bugs to Apple could make the next watchOS release even more buggy than it would have been had we had the same length of time as everyone else to take part in the testing process. We deserve more respect from Apple. Now sure, there's no doubt, those who like to be on the cutting edge get to play with the latest and greatest, and they get their kicks from that, that gives us a thrill. But Apple is also getting free labour from us. Having paid our money to Apple for their products, those of us who choose to test are donating our time and our expertise, which has value to help make Apple products better. I'm not complaining about that, but I think our contributions have worth to Apple that should be acknowledged and that we should be proud of. When we test, we do so knowing there will be bugs. And since I've quoted from the Apple email at the beginning of this piece, in the interests of transparency, I'll quote again directly from Apple on the subject from the same email. And I quote, This is beta, time-limited Apple software, meant for evaluation and development purposes only. This software may be incomplete, may contain inaccuracies or errors, and should not be used in a commercial operating environment or with important data. You should back up all of your data before installing this software and regularly back up your data while using it, unquote. And there will be some blind people who are saying at this point, exactly, it's beta. Some things don't work, so stop being so whiny, entitled, and complaining. But it's not that simple. See, I've worked in product management for a couple of IT companies. Before software goes out to external testers of any kind, there might be several builds that are so bad that they're deemed unsuitable for such a release. So let's say, for example, that Apple spun a build of watchOS where the digital crown stopped working. That would be a showstopper. It'd be so defective as to render the product dysfunctional. So they'd correct the issue and spin another build to ensure such a vital feature worked before it went out. Ditto with the touchscreen. If the touchscreen didn't work for either input or output, that would be a showstopper as well, and they would have to spin another build that fixed that issue before it left Cupertino. So why isn't voiceover placed in that category of critical defects which would stop a build from being released externally? Let me be clear, I'm not saying voiceover should be bug-free, and I'm not saying that at times those bugs mightn't be quite serious. But for Apple to knowingly release a build that doesn't have voiceover working at all is the blindness equivalent of releasing a build with the digital crown or the touchscreen not functioning. Because without voiceover working at all, we can't use the watch at all. And if we can't use the watch at all, 
we've lost valuable weeks to report bugs. And Apple has a particular responsibility because it's the only screen reader in town. If you're a Windows insider and you were to get a beta of Windows with Narrator not working at all, and I have to say I'm not aware of there ever having been a release of Windows where Narrator didn't work at all, but if there were, you would still be able to use another screen reader, be it JAWS or NVDA or HAL slash Supernova or whatever you choose to use. There would be alternatives to keep you going. But the sandboxed approach of iOS and watchOS means that if Apple breaks the screen reader, there is no alternative. And that means that Apple has to be particularly mindful of releasing a beta where they break voiceover entirely. I have heard from blind people who seem to so grossly misunderstand the situation that we're facing that they say, if you don't want to take the risk of public beta testing, if you don't want to accept that testing has risks, then don't test. But that's precisely the point. No one is testing with the public beta who is blind because they can't. By knowingly releasing a build where voiceover isn't working, Apple has deprived blind people of the choice that everybody else has to participate or not participate. Right now, there is not a single totally blind person who relies on voiceover public beta testing, and it's not by choice. This practice is a clear statement that blind people are viewed as less important customers, less equal by Apple's quality assurance department. Note that I'm not saying by Apple as a whole, although clearly an action like this sadly tarnishes Apple's entire brand. I feel strongly about this issue, but I also feel enormous gratitude for the huge difference Apple is making to our lives. Apple is a really big company. You have people coming up with ideas, brilliant, game-changing ideas, year after year after year. And when you think about some of the features in iOS 14, and for that matter, the substantial voiceover additions in watchOS 7, you see that the innovation is far from slowing down. So while it's easy to take a simple binary approach and say, Apple is good or Apple is evil, it's far more nuanced than that. I feel sure there must be people at Apple who are angry that this ablest software build was allowed to ever leave Apple. And I particularly give a shout out to the blind people who work for Apple. Because speaking personally, having worked for IT companies who have made stupid decisions, I know it can really hurt to feel the wrath of the community that you're a part of, and it's hard not to take it personally. So thank you for your service. It is appreciated. You're making a difference. But I hope those at Apple who are embarrassed about this debacle understand that we have to call it out. If we let this go without a strong response from our community, it could become a regular occurrence, and it seems like a slide further down a slippery slope that has been happening with Apple quality assurance for years. How difficult, really, would it have been to spin another build that got voiceover working again, particularly given that an entire week elapsed between the release of the build to developers and the release of the build to the public? When you note that this issue has received no mainstream tech press at all, 
you know how far we still have to go to achieve equality. If it was the digital crown or the touchscreen, we'd never have heard the end of it and it would have been fixed overnight. An additional argument I've heard that I want to address is that we are a minority. When you consider the number of blind people who are using Apple Watch, it's not realistic to expect that our accessibility needs should be taken into account when determining whether to put a build on hold and work a little more to spin another one that includes voiceover. And yet, let's look at what Tim Cook has said about these things in the past. A shareholder, an investor, got up at a meeting that Apple held for shareholders and complained about the amount of money and time that was being invested into accessibility. And he made the point that if you look at this purely from a financial standpoint, the ROI, the return on investment, was minimal. And Tim Cook was passionate in his response. He said, we're not going to measure everything based on the bloody ROI. And those were his words. He used that term. And I agree with him. I agree with him 100%. Numbers, the majority, might, is not always right. Accessibility is the right thing. And the true measure of the integrity of a company is whether they will go that extra mile when it really might be inconvenient. Accessibility advocates repeatedly tell everyone who will listen that you build accessibility from the ground up because it's easier. When Apple is building a new operating system, it is simply the wrong thing to knowingly, to willfully release a build of the software where they exclude a group of people who have every right and expectation to provide feedback. As a community, we must have the self-esteem and the self-worth to assert that we matter. And we must be a good friend to Apple. Because when a good friend goes off the rails, we take them aside and we say, buddy, you know I love you and everything, but you really have screwed up big this time. I've done a lot of things in my online life, but I've never started an online petition before. And I know it may not make a jot of difference, but who knows, maybe somebody from the mainstream tech press will pick it up and take an interest. But I know those of us who care enough and are brave enough need a place to tell Apple that knowingly releasing a public beta that excludes an entire group of users is not okay. I hope you will sign my online petition and that you'll share it with all your friends. Blind people who use assistive technology are the disabled people who could be next for exclusion by Apple and sighted people who care about justice. To sign, I've made it simple and set up a special URL. All you have to do is go to petition.mosin.org. That's petition. Dot .mosin.org Come on, Apple. You're better than this. Jonathan, this is Roy in Little Rock. I would like to tell you, first of all, that I very much appreciated your objective discussion about Apple's decision to disable voiceover in the recent beta release. I'm not a beta tester myself, but I respect and admire those of you who are because you provide a valuable service for the rest of us. And based on Apple's record on accessibility, frankly, I'm surprised that they would do such a thing. 
And I wonder, has anyone asked them the reason for that that decision? Because it simply does not make any sense. I always enjoy your podcast because I get to hear people that I haven't heard from in a long time. Last week you had Larry on, and uh, Larry was my mentor at the very beginning when I didn't know how to turn a computer on. And so I've known him over the years, and he provided valuable information for me. So it's always interesting to hear the people that come on the show. So keep up the podcast because I get a lot out of it, and I really appreciate your work. Hi, Jonathan. Tim Innesfeld from the Netherlands. Nice petition that you've got. It reminds me of the time when I was just a little boy. Actually, I was 21. At that time, we had Wayfinder Access. And Wayfinder Access, if people remember it, was the first navigation app for the blind that really worked on my Nokia N82. That was the favorite phone back then. All of a sudden, Vodafone takes over Wayfinder. Wayfinder also produced a mainstream system. Wayfinder Access was just their offering for the blind. And a couple of months later, Vodafone announces, hey, we're going to discontinue Wayfinder and we're going to shut the servers off. And that effectively meant that blind people lost access to a working navigation app. I didn't accept it. I got a little angry and some people joined me together with Neil Barnfrother and others. I set up the Wayfinder Access protest petition. We got about 4,000 signatures. We did manage to get compensated by Vodafone for crushing the lifetime subscription that we had purchased to Wayfinder Access. So we got 300 euros back, which is nice. But I think more importantly, we made some noise and attracted attention to the fact that this product was so important for us. Vodafone was interviewed on BBC National Radio. Then, sometime later, fortunately, Code Factory adapted Nokia Maps and until 2015, that suited me quite well. Nokia Maps on my E72. And then I was forced to very hesitantly buy an iPhone. I really hated it. And I still miss my Nokia and Wayfinder access, although today the technology is much better, of course. But if that had been evolved, oh, that would have been so much nicer than this touchscreen device. Speaking of navigation, Jonathan, interesting that you mentioned something like systematic exploration. It's a very important strategy. For example, when I'm in a hotel with some conference, the first two days I'll be wandering around a lot and just seemingly lost but after two days, by having explored it and walked wrong a million times, I know the environment and by day four or five, I'll be very confident in the hotel. I'd be very interested in contributions from other listeners on this topic. And also, I had hoped to hear some more stories of how people managed to travel independently before GPS navigation came along. How did you do it and what crazy situations did you encounter? Please share your stories, old folks. Back to your petition to Apple, I fully agree with your initiative. If Braille input doesn't work as a beta tester, you just use your on-screen keyboard. Or if the health app stops working as a beta tester, you just have to live without fitness statistics. That's normal for a beta tester, but totally excluding blind people from a public beta in this manner, it's clearly not acceptable, especially when you consider it in combination with the previous incident when Apple released an update which prevented many blind users from answering calls. I've written a brief story about a petition in Dutch with a link to it and shared that through the usual channels that we have for distributing announcements to the blind. Let's hope it helps. 
And I would encourage other people to do the same thing, write a bit in your own language and distribute it. Maybe for some people the story about errors in private and public betas is a bit hard to understand. I think that in our communication we really have to emphasize what to me is the main point of this petition. Apple is treating blind customers like second class customers. And we cannot accept that from a company like Apple. Apple has enough billions in the banks to pay some developers a very high rate for quickly solving the problem over the weekend. And let's not forget, Apple is exploiting its image as the most accessibility-minded company. Part of their billions in the bank may be thanks to us. And now we're being treated as second-class customers. So it's clear we should not accept this from Apple. Thank you, Tim. I do remember the Wayfinder access situation and I remember getting my refund. So thank you for the contribution that you made to making that happen. Just coming back to Roy's question, I don't think that Apple would respond if you wrote to the Apple accessibility address and asked them why the beta is not working for blind people, why they think it's okay when they found a bug that disables voiceover to the extent that they could put it in the release notes, they released it anyway, because in my experience, if you write to Apple's accessibility address, they'll simply respond with a form letter that says they don't comment on beta software. In the UK, Brian Gaff writes in and says, I don't have an Apple Watch, but it begs the question, if they are beta testing a release with no accessibility, do they perhaps feel that they need not actually make it accessible at all? Could it be the beginning of the end and that they can cram more cool features in if they don't have to support voiceover? There are a lot of smartwatches out there now which interface with both iDevices and Android and none of them has any accessibility at all. I hope I'm wrong, but otherwise I agree with you. Somebody has not been watching the bad press they got and simply carried on regardless. This does not bode well for removing the bugs if voiceover comes back. Thanks for the feedback, Brian. A couple of things. I'm not suggesting for a second that we're not going to get voiceover in watchOS 7. I am absolutely certain that we are. I would bet my house. So I do want people to maintain a sense of perspective on this. There are actually a lot of really good features that are voiceover related in watchOS 7, including the arrival of the rotor, which is very welcome. The ability to set a TTS engine that doesn't belong to your region. So, for example, if you, like me, like the Daniel voice because it's the easiest to hear, but you're in Australia in past versions of watchOS, the only thing you could do was to switch your region to the UK to get Daniel. Now you don't have to do that anymore. And, of course, Braille has come to watchOS 7. So there's a lot going on that is wonderful with watchOS 7 in terms of accessibility, and Apple deserves lots of credit for that. So we're specifically talking about a principle, really, of what kind of bug is a showstopper? And I think we'd all agree that the touchscreen and digital crown not working would be a showstopper. My contention is simply that I'd like to see the complete disabling of voiceover listed as a critical feature by Apple, so that if they spun a build and they found that voiceover wasn't working, they fix that and spin another build. I'm not for a moment suggesting that Apple is not going to have voiceover in watchOS 7. You talk about other products. It is interesting to note that it looks like accessibility of Samsung's new smartwatch is substantially improving as well. 
That's something I haven't had a play with. I think Nick Zamorelli, one of our listeners, may have reported in on this at one time. So perhaps he will get the new Samsung smartwatch because I know he's a Galaxy user and he might be able to tell us how good in reality it actually is. Hello, Jonathan from Christopher Wright. After giving this issue more thought and reading various viewpoints from Apple Vis and other sources, here are my current thoughts. I don't own an Apple Watch and have no interest in the product, as it's a very expensive iPhone accessory that primarily targets people who wish to engage in fitness and other health activities. As a result, I didn't initially give it a lot of thought, but as I thought about the larger issue, it made me focus on Apple's accessibility philosophy as a whole. First and foremost, I agree with the idea you're putting forward. Apple is sending the message that blind users are not a priority, even though their PR for many years has claimed the exact opposite. I'm also in complete agreement with you that we should praise Apple for what they've done while simultaneously calling them out and urging them to do better. I understand both sides of the argument. I still maintain that beta software can and will have problems, and you use it at your own risk. I also agree that you really shouldn't put it on devices you rely on daily. This is particularly true in the case of the Apple Watch, as there's no way to downgrade to stable software. As you know, I've been upset with Apple for quite some time. Most of this comes from the decisions they make as a company, but it increasingly comes from a lack of quality control and willingness to engage with customers. I understand that Apple is very secretive, but how are you going to improve anything if you refuse to engage with the group of people you claim to care so much about? This hypocritical behavior was once again demonstrated with the watchOS beta. I'm going to be honest and say I don't have a lot of faith in this petition or contacting Tim Cook directly, as I already tried that regarding the horrendous state of voiceover in macOS with no apology or commitment to improve provided. It's a noble effort, but I fear it will fall on deaf ears just as so many emails sent to Apple's accessibility team seem to. I wish there was a way to publish this on a major mainstream news website to gain more attention. But the problem, of course, is that the vast majority won't care. I don't have much more to say about this topic that hasn't been said already other than there's always the option to vote with your wallet. This is why I use NVDA on Windows and why I'm very close to completely jumping off the Apple train. I also believe if we're targeting Apple, we should urge other companies such as Google to improve TalkBack, BrailleBack, Android Wear, etc. The more choice we have, the better. Apple has set an example that all other companies should follow. It's a shame they're not following their own philosophy anymore. Thanks very much for sharing your thoughts, Christopher. I did want to comment on one part of that message that I think hasn't been commented on yet, and that is the cultural thing. We have been used to enjoying quite a close relationship with the developers of whatever screen reader we choose to use. So if you really want to have input into JAWS, you know where to go. NVDA is, of course, open source, and people can go there. I mean, even on Twitter and other social networks, you'll find people from Microsoft who are key decision makers in Narrator. And it's not too hard to find out who those people are and they will engage with you. There's also the Microsoft-enabled Twitter account. Also, 
Google is on Twitter with their accessibility account. But most significantly for me, if you go to the Eyes Free email group, the Google group there, which in my experience is really super busy, but you do have developers from the TalkBack team who are engaging with users. And I admire and applaud them for that because sometimes there are things going on that we are not privy to in terms of the reasons why features are taking a while, like multi-touch, for example, which is something that I've talked about in an Android context for a long time, and that's coming to Android 11, and we should celebrate that because it's going to significantly level the playing field between iOS and Android. But you're right. There is the secret of culture. For a while, Apple got quite uncharacteristically open there, and at the 2010 NFB convention, they were present, I think, They may have even been at that year's CSUN as well, showing off voiceover for the iPhone and the Mac. And now they've retreated into their shell again. And I think because we are such a vulnerable population, because when these things break, our access to the world is severely impeded. And I wouldn't go that far with the watch, obviously. The watch, as you say, is an accessory. But we do have a stake a sense of ownership in this stuff that perhaps goes beyond what many people experience or feel. And it would be a wonderful goodwill gesture on Apple's part to find a way to engage with blind people, but I suspect that's just not in Apple's culture. Now, cultures can change. New leadership can come along and and change cultures. So it's not set in stone. It's not irreversible. But you make an important point. We've become accustomed to that degree of interaction when consumers of a very specialized technology like screen readers work closely with their developers. We all win. Petition.mosin.org. I urge you to sign and we'll get those numbers continuing to go up. Some feedback coming in, first of all, from Holger on Twitter asking about the impact of two weeks. I'm sure we will get a fixed developer beta this coming week, and maybe we will get a public beta, but I doubt it. Uh, Not for another week. We'll have to see. Uh, He's asking about the impact on third-party developers. I think the impact on third-party developers is quite minimal because the accessibility guidelines will remain the same. So I wouldn't anticipate a lot of fallout. I think the potential fallout could be from fewer bugs being fixed before release. Petra is on the email and says, I certainly hope you sent a message very similar to the one you just read to us to Apple. It's brilliant. Well, thank you, Petra. Brian Borowski does not agree. Hello, Jonathan, he says. I wasn't going to write, but your complaining today has pushed me to do so. There are always warnings at the very start of agreements pertaining to the bugginess of the software. More or less, use at your own risk. Your assertion that this would never happen to sighted people and the loss of screen access is wrong. Microsoft released for a short time in May, I think it was, a Windows 10 beta that in fact broke some people's screen access. They quickly pulled the update after this was discovered. I will continue with Brian's email, but Brian, you just made my point for me. They quickly pulled the build after it was discovered. Now, let's contrast that with what Apple did. They released a developer beta deliberately knowing that they broke voiceover. It wasn't an accident. Yes, soup happens. Of course it does with betas. 
And I do remember an iOS beta where I think voiceover was broken, but it was an accident. What we have here, though, is that enough notice was available to Apple that they could put this in the release notes. You are not comparing, if I may expression <laughs> use the expression apples with apples here, because Microsoft did not release that build with release notes that said, by the way, the screen's broken. What they did was, as soon as they got feedback from customers that the screen was broken, they said, oh my goodness, and they pulled the build, and then as quickly as possible, they released a new one. Did Apple do that? No, they did not. In fact, Apple doubled down a week after releasing that build that broke access to voiceover. They released a public beta tester build that shut blind people out. You need to have, he says, a separate device to do this and not suffer the inconvenience of a breakage like the loss of voiceover. Even though some blind people have paid money to get Apple developer accounts when they don't actually develop software so that they can have input, I think there is an argument to be made that where a developer beta is concerned, that is actually a fair call. But let's talk about the public beta. I don't think that there are that many sighted people running these public betas who've gone out and bought something special. Does that mean that only really rich people are entitled to give bugs to Apple? That's essentially what you're saying. It's setting up a, a huge cost barrier. For many blind people, getting this Apple stuff is a huge commitment. People on fixed incomes, people who are out of work, and that's the majority of us. Do they not count? Putting beaters, he continues, on a production device is not really acceptable when we're developing software at work, if it's critical, it goes on to dev machines, formats machines, and then into production. And still, some errors slip through. What Apple really needs to do is to offer a backout process, says Brian, both in the beta world and when a buggy iOS comes out, so that any of us can get out of a bad software situation. I'm often slow to upgrade to newer versions of iOS especially if it is a major one, simply because there have been bad experiences, like the first iOS 5 on my 3GS that made things run so slow, I thought I was using a Windows machine. That's Windows back in that era. Hi, Jonathan. This is Wes from Iowa. I'm really sad to hear that Apple has uh, blocked us out of the voiceover beta for the Apple Watch. And, uh, or, you know, that the voiceover is not working correctly on the new beta. I, I don't want to be cynical, but I, I don't feel surprised anymore. I feel like, uh, even though Apple still has in the industry a very high commitment to accessibility, I feel like things are starting to slip. Longstanding bugs, but the things that do work, they work so phenomenally. And I wish there was a way that we could get them to be more solid on inclusion in the beta and inclusion and getting these bugs worked out. I think they need more blind people in a QA role. Blind developers are good. I think they do have that, but I really do think they need blind people in the QA role who can ride the brake, if you will, or at least try to and know that they can have good commitment that what they say will be taken. I've worked on projects where I've said things aren't accessible and there's always been the promise of later and as hard as you try to ride the brake, you kind of get pulled along in the inertia and you don't get anything done. That's kind of can burn a guy out after a while. 
On the watchOS subject, here's an email from Tim, and it says, in response to people doubting the effect of the petition, one initiative really changes the world. Many initiatives together definitely do. Why would we assume the mainstream tech press won't pick this up? They pick up so much other nonsense. When we have a valid point, it is just a matter of dropping a note to the right journalist the right way. If you don't try something because you think you won't influence the world, you are sure that you will never influence the world. That is such an important point, Tim. I'm very privileged to have had so many opportunities to have changed the world for the better in my lifetime as an advocate. Everything from laws that have been changed to international treaties to much smaller things, changes of heart that companies have made. And the one thing I do know is that if you stay silent about what you genuinely believe in, then nothing's going to change. And that's not to say that every single thing you advocate for is going to go the way that you want. A lot of advocacy feels like banging your head against a brick wall. But every so often, the wall does move. And I think it also is important, this petition, because it gives other blind people and other disabled people who are fearful at the moment that they could be next to be shut out of Apple's public beta process, and sighted people who feel a sense of injustice about what Apple has done here, it gives us a chance to have our say, to be heard. And I think that is important. And certainly, if anyone wants to contact any Turk journalists, I've done a bit of reaching out so far, then by all means do so. Put them in touch with me. I'd be happy to chat. Hi, Jonathan, says Bryant Walker. While I do not own an Apple Watch, I would like to applaud you on your attitude regarding the recent beta release, because in my opinion, it is the right attitude to have. Unfortunately, there are some people who say Apple can do no wrong. They refuse to acknowledge things such as these. To those people, I would say, are we not just as important as everyone else? Why shouldn't our beta feedback be valuable? We have a right to equal access, and Apple has ignored this. Yes, there are release notes that you should read before updating, and yes, it is beta software, but I don't think this is the main issue. The issue is that Apple released this beta knowing that voiceover would not work with it. Not only that, but a little while later, they made this beta public. One final thought. If Apple released a beta to the public where they knew that hearing aids would stop working with it, would they release it? Isn't this just as important for people like me who use hearing aids with their phones? Some people cannot even hear their phone unless they use hearing aids. David has sent an email with the subject, Corporations Playing Corporation Games, and I know that's from a song and it's driving me batty not remembering where it's from. Yes, he says, Apple has generated heat in the blindness community, read that beta watch. I hesitate to jump into the Apple-verse, though that SE20 iPhone seems a decent device. I would consider it because of the helpful apps such as Be My Eyes or Ira. And if I can just stop, David, I would still consider it if I were you. None of this changes the fact that Apple is doing some wonderful accessibility things, and I think that's why people feel so passionately about it. Apple is there, he continues, to make a buck. Doing the ADA disability and accessibility thing is good business, but it also generates goodwill and gratitude. Gary O'Donoghue is reporting in from Washington. He says, firstly, all power to your elbow.
That is a great expression. All power to your elbow on the watch beta issue. It is indefensible. I do know that Apple has at least one visually impaired person at a reasonably senior level in communications, and one would have hoped that they should have been able to envisage the horrible message this sends to the blind community. Sticking with Apple. What on earth, says Gary, is going on with Siri? For the last few weeks, it has been slowing down and doing the just a moment, please thing on the most basic of requests, including telling the time. I'm on the latest release of iOS 13, and it's consistently being slow on different networks, etc. Something is definitely broken. I've had this issue with Siri for some time, Gary, and I was expecting it to be a major issue on this show, and when it hasn't been, I thought, well, maybe it's something to do with the situation here in New Zealand. You know, I guess there must be different servers around the world where Siri serves content. CDNs, that's the term I'm looking for. But if you're seeing it too in the United States, then perhaps it's not that. I am absolutely amazed by how long Siri takes to do things sometimes. Sometimes you get the just a moment. I mean, sometimes it's instant. Sometimes you get the just a moment, please. And then when it gets really bad, I get the hmm. And then it waits a bit longer. And then eventually it might even time out. So if others are experiencing that too, I'm sorry. It does make me feel a bit better in some ways. Hard to believe it, but I've had an Audible.com account for 23 years. I got on Audible in 1997, just after it was founded, and long before Amazon acquired it. And when I heard about Audible, I thought this is going to be a great service. The audio quality was pretty grainy at that time, because they used to compress the heck out of the files to get them to download over a dial-up connection. And I also remember the Audible Otis, since people like to talk about old technology. They sent me a review Audible Otis when I was doing main menu. And I remember we had Don Katz, the founder of Audible on main menu. Great days indeed. And of course, these days, Audible is a part of the Amazon.com family and the audio quality is vastly superior. They've expanded and in the smartphone dominated high bandwidth era in which we live, Many people around the world are using Audible. And for obvious reasons, many blind people love their audiobooks. There are various ways in which you can engage with Audible. And the way that I do it is that Bonnie and I share one of those Audible 12-month credit deals where you get a whole bunch of credits every 12 months and you can use those throughout the year because I find that particularly in the summertime when I really switch off, I may get through quite a good number of books, but the rest of the year I may not. And so that works for us. And thanks to the fact that Bonnie and I are in the same household, we have all this set up with an Amazon household account. And that means that we can share the audio books that we get from Audible, just like we share the Kindle books that we get from Amazon. So it really works well if you're in a household to work that way. So what I typically do is switch to Bonnie's account, which has the Audible on it, on our Amazon Echo, and I say to it, read whatever from Audible, and then I buy the book. I just say, buy this. And when I've bought the book, I then go to the Audible app on my iPhone, and it's there. It's in my library. I can double tap and download. Now, I know that there are blind people who don't work this way, 
particularly those who choose to read books on blindness-specific devices, such as the Victor Reader Stream. I don't even own a Victor Reader Stream. I've never owned one, and so I don't really have any knowledge directly of how that experience works. But it seems there is a bit of trouble with respect to Audible, and I've been trying to get to the bottom of this after I got Henry's emails last week. I raised it on the podcast by reading Henry's email, and we've had a few responses, and I've also reached out to Audible. So let's go through some of this. Maribel Steele has written in from Australia, and she says, Hi, Jonathan, I hope you are keeping well. Such strange days indeed. Yeah, most peculiar. Strange days indeed. I wanted to reach out to ask you a technical question in regards to Audible. I found out that when downloading my monthly book from Audible, that they are no longer compatible with my Daisy player. I am devastated. Using this portable device with narrators has been a joy. I am not savvy with smartphones and really don't want the voiceover reading to me for 14 hours. My question is, is there another digital player like Daisy I can use? And are you aware of this new change they are calling Enhanced? Harry, that's Mirabel's husband, usually downloads the files to his PC, then loads them to my Daisy, but we found tonight it won't work that way anymore. As you always offer such great advice on your podcasts, I wondered if you know of a solution here. Thanks for your email, Maribel. Now, I have done a little bit of research on this, but there are, I'm sure, Mosin at large listeners who know more about this subject than me. So let me tell you what I have discovered by doing a bit of research. I think the issue that you're confronting is covered in an email that you may have received a couple of months ago, which I have found. And the email says, Dear listener, Our records show that in the past, you may have downloaded your Audible titles on your Windows PC in an older audio format we call Format 4. In the upcoming weeks, we will be moving all downloads to an enhanced, high-quality audio format and will no longer support Format 4 downloading. We're excited about providing you with this higher-quality listening experience. Your Audible titles are yours to keep, and will be available for download in the new, higher-quality audio format. If you prefer to listen to your Audible titles in format for audio, you will want to download them all to your device before we make the switch on 6-30-2020. And here's a part of the email that will be relevant to even more people. It says you can continue downloading using the Audible Manager software on your computer if you would like, but... You will need to make sure you are downloading an enhanced format. If you switch to a different computer in the future, you will need to download a new software called Audible Sync, which we are working on now. If you would like to learn more about other ways to listen to Audible, like via smartphone app for iOS and Android devices, streaming from your desktop or laptop computer, or from a Drinker integrated device, we are happy to talk to you more about these options. If you run into any issues, just let us know. We'll figure it out. We're here for you 24-7. So that's the email that came through, I guess, sometime in May or June of this year. So what this means for you, Maribel, is it sounds like whatever Daisy player it is that you have only supports Format 4 Audible Books, 
And what you need is a device that supports Audible enhanced books, which actually will sound a lot better. And when you get such a device, I think you'll appreciate the improved sound quality. In earlier times, Audible had a variety of formats to really allow for the fact that people had different kinds of internet connection. And if you were downloading an Audible book on a dial-up connection or even a slow broadband connection, you may have decided, look, I will actually put up with a poorer quality sound just to get the book down quicker. Or, of course, it could be relating to storage. In earlier times, there wasn't as much storage available on devices as there is today. And so compressing the book, which made it sound pretty terrible, was a way of getting the book onto your device with minimal storage requirements. So things obviously do change. I have looked up on the Humanware website the streams support for Audible, and the Victor Reader stream does play Audible enhanced books. So I'm confident that if you were to purchase a Victor Reader stream, if you don't want to go down the smartphone route, you will then be able to get crystal clear sounding Audible books and download them to your stream. Now that, of course, presupposes that the download process is accessible. Obviously, if you've got Audible Manager up and running on your PC at the moment, I believe it is a moot point. You can continue to use Audible Manager and your husband can just transfer the books for you to your new Victor stream. And that should all just do its thing once you get a Daisy player that supports Audible enhanced books. So I hope that helps and gives you a kind of a lifeline to ensure that you'll be able to continue to get your Audible books. On the subject of Audible, Kathy Blackburn is writing in from Austin in Texas. She says, not long after I installed Windows 10 on my laptop, I downloaded the Audible app from the Microsoft Store. I don't remember it being called Audible Sync. No, this is a different thing. At any rate, it was not usable. As of this morning, I can still download books from the Audible website. I still put Audible books on my Victor Reader stream, though I agree that the iOS Audible app makes downloading and reading Audible books insanely easy. The Fire OS Audible app is just as good. In fact, when my new credits arrive, I often buy the new titles using my Fire tablet. The Audible website is less user-friendly than it used to be. The My Library portion used to be set up as a table, and you could navigate through titles efficiently. Now, one must tab through buttons meant for rating each title in order to get from one title to the next. Thanks, Kathy. The Audible Sync app is a new app, and it appears to be, from what I can gather, replacing Audible Manager. So my understanding, based on the research I've done, is that if Audible Manager is on your PC now, you can continue to use it. And I presume if you've got the install file, you might be able to install it on a new PC if you ever change PCs, but I don't know that for certain. I don't know whether they're going to decline to activate new installs of Audible Manager. But it looks like this new Audible Sync app is the way of the future in terms of getting the content onto your PC. The Audible app for Windows 10 that allows you to listen to Audible books and that's available in the Windows Store was not, the last time I checked it, a pleasant experience at all. I don't know whether anybody's using that with any success, but it would be interesting to hear. Hello, Lana. Thank you for your email. 
She says, while I can still download books using Audible Manager, they've come up with this Audible Sync, which is impossible to sign on to. We get into a security loop, enter username, enter Amazon password, type the characters in the challenge, and once we do, it's back to password. I know from other times I have accessed Audible and Amazon that my name and password are fine. The old-fashioned way is working for now, but I fear this won't last long. Given what a much-loved service Audible is in the blind community, I reached out to Amazon and asked if somebody might come on the podcast and answer some questions about Audible. We did not get acceptance of that invitation, but an Amazon spokesperson did give me some information that I could pass on. The statement we've received says we are aware of an issue affecting the login process in the current version of Audible Sync and have been working to correct it in an update to the app. Once the update is available, which should be in the next 48 hours, and I should say this was at the earlier part of this week, so maybe it's out now, customers opening Audible Sync will automatically be prompted to install the new version, which should resolve the issue. If your listeners continue to experience issues using Audible Sync, we invite them to contact Audible's customer service team. We are committed to ensuring the accessibility of Audible and that all customers are able to access their libraries of purchased titles. So, in essence, we have a number of things going on at once. One is that it appears to be some people are unhappy with some changes to the website of late, and obviously people can feed back on that issue. The second issue is that Audible Format 4 books are no longer downloadable. You'll need a player that works with Audible Enhanced. And the third issue relates to this Audible Sync app and the fact that Audible Manager is being replaced with Audible Sync. So you can continue to use Audible Manager if it's installed now. You eventually will have to migrate to Audible Sync. I did contact Amazon once again and said, in addition to the current problems signing in, which your statement addresses, listeners are complaining that they are being subjected to an inaccessible capture. Being blind, they can't see that capture. Is this also being addressed? An Audible spokesperson replies, yes, it's important to us to ensure a fully accessible login process for our customers. This is part of the sign-on issue we are currently addressing. I also passed on my feedback that some people have said that Audible Sync is not particularly screen reader accessible, and does Audible agree that this is the case at present? An Audible spokesperson replies, We support Windows Narrator, JAWS and NVDA, and have extensively tested Audible Sync to ensure compatibility with these screen reading technologies. If customers are having difficulty using Audible Sync with one of these or another screen reading technology, we encourage them to reach out to our customer service team. So in summary, there are changes. There have been a couple of glitches. It does appear that Audible is committed to addressing those and making sure that blind people can continue to have access to their titles. I do note the encouragement to contact Audible customer service, and that's fair enough, of course. But I have also had some feedback that that can sometimes be a frustrating experience when it comes to accessibility-related issues. So I'd be interested to hear how well that's working. If you do contact Audible 
and you explain that you're a blind person using, say, a Victor Reader stream, or even that you're a blind person using a screen reader trying to download books on the website and you're finding it cumbersome, do they actually know what you mean? And if they don't know what you mean, are you being escalated to someone who does know what you mean? Is there some sort of accessibility specialist in Audible customer service that you get escalated to where you can have a meaningful dialogue about some of these issues? Please let me know. Give us some feedback on any of this Audible-related stuff. You can drop me an email, jonathan at mushroomfm.com. Attach an audio file or just write something down. The listener line number, of course, in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. And look at this feedback already coming in. Kelly Superger in Moose Jaw in Canada. I do love that. He says, hi, Jonathan, after listening to the comments... Regarding the new Audible Sync program for Windows on last week's Mosin at Large, I decided to try it on one of my PCs using NVDA as my screen reader. The interface for the program is that of a web page. I didn't experience any problems logging into my account with it, though I did have to complete a capture which does have an audio equivalent. Once it was selected... I just pressed the play button, NVDA placed me in the required edit field, and I entered the given numbers. There is a link below the edit box labeled something to the effect of click here if you are having trouble completing the capture or are sight impaired, but I didn't click it to see what would happen. Once logged in, my Audible library was displayed. Certain elements of the interface seem to have been adapted for screen readers. Downloading books was easy, as when I moved to the download button, NVDA would say press enter to begin to download. That's fine, but I think they really went too far in regards to giving information about a book to screen reader users. For instance, instead of just saying a book's name, followed by the author and narrator, I would be told, as an example, the title of this audiobook is Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. The author of this audiobook is J.K. Rowling. The narrator of this audiobook is Jim Dale. Oh, man, have they not got the Stephen Fry? Excess verbiage like that, says Kelly, just drives me crazy. I didn't have any trouble downloading a book, but it took me a while to find it so I could copy it to my VR Streams SD card. Using a great program called Everything, yes, that is a great program, from voidtools.com, I found out it was placed in the folder users slash username slash app data slash roaming slash audible sync slash downloads. Oi, <laughs> maybe you want to create a shortcut to your desktop with that or something, or pin it to your Windows Explorer, File Explorer list. I don't know if this can be changed, but I would have preferred to have the books placed in the Documents folder instead, similar to what the old Audible Download Manager would do. I hope this information is helpful. Sounds like they have fixed the initial bug then that was preventing people from logging in, so that's great news. And it is always a challenge, isn't it, for developers who clearly are really trying to do the right thing, and they go over the top with the verbiage, and that's where real-world testing 
with real-world screen reader users is so important. But that sounds promising nonetheless, so thank you, Kelly. And word coming in on Twitter that Doug Lee has Audible scripts for JAWS for that Audible app, that Windows 10 Audible app. So I will have to try that. He's got a lot of scripts for a lot of things. Head on over to dlee, that's D-L-E-E dot org, and you can get his Audible scripts for that Windows 10 app, and I shall definitely try them. Surfing the web, at least we used to call it that. It's a key part of the use of our technology, and yet it can be complicated with a screen reader. Often one browser is not enough, and when one browser isn't enough is the name of a new book on techniques for using multiple browsers with screen readers to get the job done. And joining me to talk about his book is David Kingsbury from the Carroll Center in, do you you call it Boston? It's technically Newton, isn't it? Uh, It's Newton. You can just say, uh, you know, outside of Boston. Outside of Boston, because I've been to the Carroll Center and it's a great place and I've been there several times to present and speak. And yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's a really great environment. You're all very high tech out there with all the latest and greatest. How long have you been with the Carroll Center, David? Well, I've been a full-time employee with the Carroll Center for, I think, about five and a half years. But I have a longer history with the place because I actually went there first to get uh, rehab training because I became blind about 15 years ago. So I went there as a trainee first in 2007. I got a lot of excellent training in uh, independent living skills, uh, orientation, mobility, household management, and technology also, of course. And then I came back a number of years later um, as an employee. So it really is a great place, and I've seen it from both sides. Yeah, great success story in that regard then. What encouraged you to write this particular book? I know you've written other titles in the past. Uh, Why this one? As you know, there's really been a pretty dramatic um, evolution of uh, web browser technology, or at least uh, accessible web browser technology in just the last few years. You know, for a long time, there was just Internet Explorer and Firefox. And then just three years ago, Uh, Google Chrome became accessible with JAWS and NVDA, and Microsoft Edge also became accessible in that year. It was a lousy version, uh, but, you know, since January of this year, uh, there's a new Microsoft Edge, and that's quite accessible, too. So we went from two web browsers that were accessible to at least four, and I just wanted to first sort out in my own mind, you know, how do you deal with that? Uh, Do you just perhaps pick one browser and go with that one? Or do you try to learn a little bit about uh, the various ones that are out there and uh, manage that in some way? And I didn't really have a good understanding of what the answer to that might be until I started uh, researching the book. And I have you know come down very much in favor of the idea of using multiple browsers. You know, the browsers I cover are, are Chrome, the new Edge, Uh, Firefox, and still Internet Explorer. I come down on the side of using multiple browsers for a number of reasons. First is that, as we all know, whenever you're browsing the web, uh, you'll run into glitches, you know, links that don't work, buttons that aren't labeled, etc. And as your first line of defense to perhaps get over those hurdles, you know, you want to try using a different browser. Second reason I've found from some experience is that, you know, with technology, you never want to put all of your eggs in a single basket if you can avoid that. And I do remember, I think three or four years ago, 
when Firefox uh, had a major upgrade and they switched to Quantum, for a couple of weeks, uh, Firefox was totally inaccessible till they figured out a workaround. And if you were completely dependent on Firefox, then that was a major problem. Uh, but if you could switch over to another browser, then it was more of a hiccup until a solution was figured out. As I explored the browsers, you find that um, each of them have strengths and weaknesses. And if you can use multiple browsers, then you know you can capitalize on the strengths and avoid the weaknesses. So uh, you may pick and choose uh, features that work very well in one web browser and not use them in, in another one. It, it might sound overwhelming to try to become familiar with all four of the browsers, but as it turns out, there are many, you know, many, many keystrokes and procedures that are identical between the browsers. So um, fortunately, the learning curve, uh, you know, once you are uh, comfortable using one web browser with a screen reader program, uh, getting to know the other ones is really not that difficult. So this book attempts to you know, map out how you might go about uh, doing that, and as well as you know, highlighting some of the the features that are stronger in one browser versus the others. In a mainstream context, Google Chrome is by far the most popular browser. Uh, it's not even close, and yet in the blind community, it appears anyway, anecdotally, that people are clinging on to Internet Explorer, I have to say, to their detriment, right? That browser is becoming more and more of a problem on more and more pages as it becomes more and more obsolete. Uh, that is true. Uh, one thing that I do early in the book is I, I go through trends in uh, browser usage, both uh, in the sighted public and in the blindness community. And there has been an interesting evolution. You know, you know of these surveys called the WebAIM surveys. Uh, that every two years uh, ask a number of questions about of people using assistive technology. So I, I've compared 2017, which was basically just when uh, those additional browsers became accessible, against the most recent WebM survey, which was in the fall of 2019. So you get a bit of before and after. And there's been an interesting evolution. I think if I've got my numbers correct, Chrome usage among screen reader users as the primary browser uh, went from uh, 15% to over 40%. And that cut into share of Firefox and Internet Explorer. So there has been an evolution towards Chrome and Edge and play. Well, Edge was not caught because we were, they were still looking at the old Edge. So that went from 1% to 1% again. But I think Edge usage is definitely going to increase. It already has, I'm sure. So there has been an evolution, but still, uh, I think too many people, too many blind people are probably still using Internet Explorer. You know, when you do something like the WebAIM survey, of course, that's not a random sample. Yes, that is, exactly. uh, you know, the people who take such a survey tend to be a bit more tech savvy because one, they find out about it and then, you know, two, they can actually fill it out. So, that probably understates the extent to which Internet Explorer usage has fallen. So that, that's another um, purpose of this book, to, to get people uh, more comfortable with the other browsers, uh, because, you know, it really is not such a major change. You know, I've, I've trained people at the Carroll Center and exposed them to Chrome and the New Edge 
after using Internet Explorer for years. And they are okay with it within a half hour or an hour. It's almost like they forgot which browser they're using because so many of the keystrokes are the same. So it is important to make that transition. Uh, but I also make the point, at least for one or two reasons, don't necessarily totally throw Internet Explorer out the window because it still has one or two things that, at least in my own opinion, it does better than all the other browsers. But I would, I would certainly move away from it being my, my default browser. Yes, and without creating too many spoilers, because we want people to buy the book, obviously, but your talk in that book about the use of the favorites from Internet Explorer to kind of act as this conduit, this central repository of favorites for all your browsers is a really interesting point. And it did make me wonder whether eventually we might be able to persuade Microsoft to integrate that kind of favorite technology where they're actually leveraging a folder in Windows Explorer into the new version of Microsoft Edge, because that definitely has numerous accessibility advantages. Uh, yes, it does. Um, again, Microsoft Edge has what it calls favorites. You know, favorites, uh, of course, are more or less the equivalent of bookmarks. But the way their favorites are set up is, is still very similar to the way that bookmarks are set up in Chrome and Firefox. And, you know, as an instructor, I really like to train people in things where they don't have to learn a whole bunch of new stuff. So if you already know how to uh, manage files and folders and let us say your documents folder. You really don't have to learn anything new at all uh, to use favorites in Internet Explorer. And if you put your favorites on the desktop, even though you're creating your favorites in Internet Explorer, when you open them, they will open in your default browser. So in the book, I do go through how you, you know, create bookmarks, manage bookmarks, and so on in um, in Chrome, Firefox, and favorites in Edge. But the point I make in the book is that if you, if you just do uh, uh, favorites in Internet Explorer, you know you don't have to read the rest of this particular chapter on on doing those because I just don't see it as worth the trouble. So you know that's and I tried to tease out some synergies between the browsers. Where again, if you do something in one browser, how that can work to make uh, life easier in the other browsers, and that was sort of my favorite example. It, it, it's interesting because again. IE is has fallen out of favor for very good reasons, but that does not mean abandon it completely. Just use it strategically. Microsoft Edge never really took off in its previous incarnation with anybody, and particularly blind users. And one of the issues with Microsoft Edge was that they locked it down so tight that traditional virtual cursors or browse modes, depending on the screen reader that you're using, could not work. And in fact, it's interesting to me that Microsoft and Freedom Scientific sort of invested a lot of time where Microsoft funded Freedom Scientific specifically to work with that old defunct version of Edge, rather than simply using the approach which Chrome took, uh, which was able to leverage virtual cursor technology that already existed and do it quite effectively. So now, to everybody's surprise, we have Microsoft Edge uh, 2.0-ish using the Chromium engine, completely new build, really, with the same old name. I wonder if you have ever found pages that work differently between Edge and Chrome? Because I personally have not. If something behaves a certain way in Chrome, it's going to behave exactly that same way in Edge because it's the same browser engine. Is that your experience too? Uh, I think so, yeah. I can't think off the top of my head pages that have behaved radically different between uh, the two. 
And I certainly know since since Edge came out in January, uh, a lot of people really like Edge. I like Edge mm. a lot. So we talk about the, those WebAIM surveys. I know when they do it a year and a half from now, well, I guess we'll just be about a year or so from now, Edge is going to make major inroads, I think. It's certainly going to go higher than the 1% or 2% it's at, it was at before because it can't go any lower. Uh, but you know, <laughs> I've heard a lot of buzz that uh, people really like Edge. I love, uh, I, I know I've heard uh, you talk about it. Um, I love that immersive reader uh, feature in Edge. And if I am going to go to a website that I know is sort of cluttered up, I will often just open it in Edge. And I really like that immersive reader view. I was just using it about five or 10 minutes ago for a page where I couldn't find out where the where the stupid article actually started. And boom, I did the immersive reader and it started effortlessly. Yeah, and it's fast. It's also quite energy efficient. So there are some definite battery life benefits for laptop users in going with Microsoft Edge. They've kind of stripped some of the baggage away uh, from the Google Chrome browser. So it might be that if people are looking to make choices, you could choose, say, Firefox and Edge or Firefox and Chrome because the experience between Edge and Chrome is quite similar in terms of the way the pages render. Yeah, that, that could be. I've definitely found situations where uh, Firefox behaves differently than um, than Chrome. Mm, for sure. Uh, but I think, again, I think the... The thing that's useful is just to get comfortable using the different browsers. And one thing that I really like about Windows 10 is that it's extremely easy to change your default browser. So I might decide for what I'm doing today, my gut tells me that things are going to go a little bit better in Edge. So I'll switch over to Edge and then maybe tomorrow I switch to, to Chrome or or to Firefox just for kicks. But it's really easy to do. And that's a nice feature of Windows 10. And, you know, this brings up a really interesting psychological point, I guess, rather than a technological one. But I find that people get very tribal about their technology. It's almost like a political affiliation. And so people tend to say, I'm a, I'm a JAWS person or I'm an NVDA person or I'm a Chrome person or I'm a Firefox person. And it's always struck me as bizarre that so many of us do that because I don't think we can necessarily afford that luxury. Uh, if these tools are available to us, one should have as many tools in the toolbox as possible to get the job done. Uh, sure. I mean, I would agree with you. I've never gotten really tribal about anything myself. Uh, you know, I know for a long time earlier in life, you know, Microsoft was the bad boy. So <laughs> there was there were reasons to maybe want to go with Firefox that were more, um, what would I say, ideological and technology-based. Uh, I've never really been like that myself, but... Um, there are those different technologies. I like to use them. I guess, of course, one major issue these days, I, I touch on it a little bit, is is the whole issue of privacy and security. And, and so people have reasons why, for example, they really want to use Firefox uh, that are good. Uh, because at the end of the day, who really knows what Google is doing with our information or Microsoft is doing with our information? They say all sorts of nice things, but do we really know? So, you know, that's another reason to be flexible, want to use different technologies, because, you know, you never know when you're going to get hammered <laughs> yeah. on, the, on the security end of things. To what extent do you think Firefox's reputation took a hit in the blind community with that quantum debacle? Because I must tell you, I actually uninstalled 
Firefox, I was annoyed on two fronts. First, that I think they kind of take the moral high ground when it comes to browsing. And you just alluded to this. Their images, we're the good guys. And yet the good guys chose to release a new version of the browser that had significant accessibility issues. I can remember the sluggishness that exhibited with screen readers when Quantum first came out and the hoops that screen reader developers were expected to go to to comply with Firefox's changes. And then they began talking about imposing a new screen reader and browser modality on everybody, which I thought was actually quite arrogant that they were going to tell the rest of the blind community in the screen reader industry what to do, particularly with the market share that they had. So I've never used Firefox since then. And I just wonder whether you think, whether your uh, knowledge has told you that a lot of people really just gave up on Firefox in the blind community at that point. Well, I don't have any particular insights myself. Uh, what you just said, though, that, that sounds interesting to me. And again, if you look at the WebAIM survey, I think Firefox use, again, I don't have the uh, statistics right in front of me, but if I remember, Firefox usage as the main screen reader went from something like 40, 41% in 2017 down to like 25 or 26%. And that might partly have been due to what you just said there. And it may also have been partly due to simply the fact that uh, Chrome became more um, accessible. I have to say uh, with Firefox, um, from what I saw in writing the book, I just found a number of areas where Firefox was, I would not say inaccessible, but where the usability for doing a certain number of tasks was really not as good as with the other browsers. Especially in preferences, right? Uh, yeah, what do they call preferences or, well, they're, they're, um, they're equivalent of settings, that, um, yeah, yeah. is pretty clunky. And then certain basic things that you'd like to be able to do, you know, create a desktop shortcut, saving passwords is virtually impossible. So these days it really is not amongst my preferred, uh, browsers, but again, I, I will say that if security privacy is something that you value, there's still merit to using Firefox. Now, although your book is called When One Browser Isn't Enough, you also do tackle the question of using multiple screen readers. How often do you find it the case that there is a substantial difference between the way you can get the job done or even whether you can get the job done by changing screen readers on a particular web page? Uh, I find that on occasion, it does help out. Um, I don't have any specific examples right off the top of my head. But again, as as a troubleshooting solution, when something gets a little buggy, it's it's nice to be able to switch your uh, your screen reader program. Uh, for me, JAWS, JAWS is my uh, principal screen reader. Uh, but sometimes JAWS misbehaves, it stops talking a bit, and I will immediately turn on Narrator. And I have to say it's sort of funny. It, it strikes me that JAWS gets jealous because, uh, and you turn on Narrator, <laughs> and, and JAWS comes right back. So, oh, oh, you know, don't, don't steal my terrain here. Uh, but I'll do that four or five times a day. It, it could be that my computer is a little bit old, but, but JAWS will hiccup a bit. And I, at least for the moment, use myself personally narrator more in that type of situation but narrator also has just made huge 
progress in the last few years at becoming a, a fully viable uh, screen reader. The book I wrote last year on word formatting, I, I only I limited myself to JAWS and NVDA, but for this book I thought, no, oh, it's time to include Narrator too, because um, that is more and more viable as a screen reader program. And, you know, a lot of credit to uh, to Microsoft. I think also they've become much more of a leader in, in accessibility, uh, not only in terms of Narrator, but having a fantastic uh, accessibility desk that you can call when you when you run into major roadblocks. So uh, I felt it was it was worth talking about all three screen readers. That said, the the focus of the book is primarily on on the web browsers, uh, but I do talk a little bit about you know the various customizations that you can do with the different uh, screen readers also. Yeah, for me, and I know this will be different for different people, but this version that came out with the May Windows 10 2020 update was the tipping point. To me, there's kind of an efficiency about Narrator now that does actually make it quite viable. I have spent some time uh, doing Outlook email with Narrator, and uh, it's quite impressive now. I wonder what they might be able to do if they can unbundle Narrator from the six monthly Windows update cycle, if you could get Narrator updates, say on the monthly update channel through Windows Update, and they can push updates to the masses more quickly, I think Narrator is becoming more and more of a viable screen reader. Yeah, that would be a nice thing to do if it was feasible. Uh, you know, one point I make towards the end of the book is that I think now more than ever, uh, it's really important to be as up to date as possible as you can be with your technology, you know, keeping your JAWS up to date. Keeping NVDA up to date is less of an issue because it's free and it's not a financial issue as it is with JAWS. Uh, but with Narrator, there is that caveat that because it's bundled with, you know, the newest Windows 10 release, uh, you know, those Windows 10 releases, it's been really a roller coaster ride. You get a good one followed by a, a not so good one. Uh, Etc. And you know, some people are still holding back on getting the most up-to-date narrator because uh, you know they've gotten the impression that the the newest Windows update might have some issues. But it would be really nice if those could be uh, decoupled. Um, I agree with you on that. So I guess the key message is that people might be a little bit reluctant to install multiple browsers because they're thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, it could create conflicts and all the sorts of things. That's really not the case, is it? I mean, they can, you can have many browsers, and you've of necessity focused on those big ones, but there are others. We've talked on this show about Brave Browser before because that has a particular emphasis on security for those who have concerns about that, and that is also using the Chromium engine. So I've got a, I've got a bunch of browsers here on my computer, and it really creates no issue at all to have as many browsers as you want to play with. Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, again, I, I keyed on just what I considered the four most uh, most used browsers. Mm. But I put Brave on my computer, and if again, if you know how to use Chrome, you know how to use Edge, uh, picking up Brave is about uh, a 15-minute chore there. And again, if, if security, privacy is something that interests you, Brave is potentially a, uh, a, good, uh, a good tool there. You know, the one thing that that's for sure, is there's going to continue to be change. There'll probably be new browsers. And my strategy has been, and again, I'm not really a, a complete techno geek or anything like that. Um, I just 
prefer to use technology to get from point A to point B. But you really need to be, to some extent, up on the changes that are happening. So you can uh, avoid bad things happening and you can uh, take advantage of of new developments. Even though you might not class yourself as a major geek, you have the strategies and the techniques that mean that if it's possible, you will solve most problems in terms of getting access to information on the web. And that leads me to my next question, really. You obviously train a lot of students, and I wonder whether you have a perception, say on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being it's absolutely horrible and 10 being we're in a, a beautiful age of nirvana. How accessible do you think the web is these days for blind people? Because I hear some people saying the web is now a much more hostile place and it's horrible and others saying it's never been better. Where do you fall on that question? Oh, boy, that's... Well, it's definitely a mixed bag. I mean, I have everyday frustrations like everybody else does. Uh, but, of course, there are a lot of websites where, you know, by people becoming, developers becoming more and more familiar with the WCAG, plus here in the United States, lawsuits doesn't help to have a lawyer from time to time. Um, a lot of websites have gotten better. So if I had to say 1 to 10, oh boy maybe about a seven or so. Um, There's just still a lot of um, frustrating websites. We in the United States haven't done that good of job of of making the law all clear on, um, you know, what websites need to do. Although technically, you know, with the WCAJ, it's very clear what the criteria should be. There's no doubt about that. but, you know, I, I have those frustrations where, you know, you fill out a form, everything looks great, and then the send button doesn't work. So uh, that website might be 96% accessible, but that last 4% is the send button that doesn't work. And that yeah. gets very frustrating. <laughs> one, one of the most stupid mistakes I used to make repeatedly, and now I've got into the habit of uh, evolving techniques so I don't make this mistake, is I happily fill in a form and it looks really accessible and we're humming along. And then right at the end of the form, it's type the characters that you see and there's no accessible alternative. And you think, God, I've just spent 10 minutes completing this form and now I'm not going to be able to submit it. Uh, thankfully, we have technologies like IRA and and other things that can help with that. But you've got to be on your guard for that. So sometimes it's a good idea to start at the bottom of the form and work your way back and make sure that an inaccessible capture isn't going to stop you in your tracks. I know that. I just wish I would remember it when those things (laughs) happen. (laughs) Uh, At at least one good thing has happened. You now have these captures that all you need to do is check the checkbox. And I hope... I hope these visual ones, as well as the audio ones that sound like they're talking from the bottom of a well, you know, uh, I hope those go away and, and these simply become checkboxes that you can check. I've noticed there are more of more of those and that gets rid of a lot of unnecessary headaches. Yes. And it all seems to relate to being signed into Google, uh, to, signed into your Google account, and somehow they are verifying that you're a screen reader user. So that's a fantastic initiative. I did have one question or uh, quibble or, or just query really about the book. And that is, you were talking about some of the challenges that we have saving passwords in different browsers. And I kept thinking, when's it going to talk about password managers? I would be so lost without one password, which makes my multi-browser lifestyle so easy because I just have one password working with 
Chrome and Edge, and it allows me to just hit a key and fill in my unique password for every website that I visit, and I don't know what those passwords even are. I wondered whether you had considered the benefits of uh, something like 1Password in a multi-browser approach. Uh, you know, I didn't, but I, I I should have, and especially because you're right. I mean, and that is one of your best defenses in terms of security and the like. So um, that's a fair critique. Maybe well, if I do another go. version, I'll put that in there. I'm always looking for ways I could revise and update. So that's that is a uh, I think that's a a fair critique. I'll give you that. I, well, oh, good on you. Yeah, one password. <laughs> one password's just such a wonderful tool, and the really nice thing too is it's available everywhere. So all my passwords that I have on my PC are equally as available to me on my iPhone, and that's one of the reasons why I haven't got too wedded to iCloud Keychain because I did give up the Mac, and there's no way to get to those iCloud Keychain passwords on the PC, but with 1Password, it's truly cross-platform. There's even a 1Password for Android, and they seem to really care about accessibility, actually. So it's a mm. great tool. Yeah. yeah it's a, you're right. Th- this is a really good read. I highly recommend it. Uh, people get nervous about these things, trying multiple browsers, and you really are putting people at their ease. How can people obtain a copy of the book? Uh, well, it's published by uh, my organization, the Carroll Center for the Blind. So you can go to the Carroll Center website, and that's you know, www.carroll.org, and that is C-A-R-R-O-L-L.org. And then you can uh, go to the link for shop, you know, S-H-O-P, because we have a store called the Carroll Store, and uh, you'll see it there. Uh, it's available in Word. We're thinking about also making it available in uh, in BRF format so people could download it and, and read it on a... Um, a Braille device if they wanted to. Uh, we haven't done that yet, but but hopefully we'll get it out in, in BRF format also. And it's uh, uh, $20 US. Money well spent. It has a lot of useful information and a lot of handy-dandy shortcuts and some techniques for when your browser misbehaves. Really, a lot of good stuff there. So we'll put a link to it in the show notes. I wish you all the best with the book, and I uh, hope people pick it up and enjoy their browsing. Well, thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure, uh, Jonathan, to, to speak to you. And David has inspired me. Inspired me is what he has, because I would like to know how accessible you think the web really is these days. For those of us who've been around since the beginning of the web, it's changed a lot, eh? First of all, the web was just a series of static pages, and sometimes there were accessibility issues because not all links had text and It could be a bit dicey, and of course, screen reading technology was not as advanced as it was. The virtual pilot browse mode virtual cursor type model really was a game changer in terms of blind people surfing the web. So there's been this really nice convergence of more capable screen reading and better web standards that more people are adhering to. But the challenges have continued. The web is now a place where applications can also happen. It was called Web 2.0 for a while. And there are a lot of quite complex applications that run from a web browser. And those things really don't feel like a web page at all. In fact, many browsers with virtual cursor slash browse mode type functions disable them in some of these modern environments now. You can go and do Google Docs and Microsoft Office and serious work 
without even really feeling like you're in a web page, except that your browser happens to be open. So, I'm asking you this. On a scale of 1 to 10, how accessible do you think the web is now? 1 being, it's absolutely appalling soup, and 10 being, you know, it's beautiful, it's Nevada. The same question I just asked David, really. How accessible do you think the web is and why? I'd like to understand what technology you're using, whether you believe a particular combination of technology, browser and screen reader, for example, give you the best results. Do you strongly feel, for example, that Internet Explorer still gives you the best experience, no matter what people say? Let me know how you feel about using the web these days. Do you feel optimistic things are getting better? Do you feel pessimistic things are getting worse? Let me know. Drop me an email, jonathan at mushroomfm.com with an audio attachment or write something down. The listener line, of course, in the United States, 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large Podcast. Tiffany H. Jessen has written in, and I have commented before how much I really appreciate this sort of middle initial thing that Americans like to do, because it always leaves me curious about what the initial stands for. I don't think we've established it. It could be Helen, could be Horatio. Mm, Maybe not. Anyway, Tiffany says that she's reminded of me twice. It's so nice to be thought of, Tiffany. She says, I'm currently attending one of the APH's webinar titles. I remember when the word webinar, this is me talking now, this is me. I, I remember when the word webinar started to come up and I would write it in Microsoft Word and it would suggest as a replacement, because it thought webinar was a misspelling, it would suggest wine bar as the appropriate replacement, which could be quite a nice replacement for webinar. Many people would like to replace a webinar with a wine bar, but I digress. Tiffany says, I currently am attending one of APH's webinars titled What's New? In second edition book, Access Technology for Blind and Low Vision Accessibility. It's only a few minutes into the class. What? Are you writing while you're listening to this, Tiffany? And twice I've thought about your prior discussions on the Mosin at Large and the blind side. First, the speaker was mentioning that the new APA manual says to use identity first language. Yay! She specifically made it a point to say... It undoes what was previously enforced in her college classes. Professors taking points off from assignments if you didn't use person first. Basically, she and the book agrees with you now. But my thought is that without knowing how each individual identifies, it is hard to know which to use at a particular time. But also, it doesn't help with addressing a group of people, whether live, in writing, or even simply naming a service provider, agency, organization, etc., which, of course, has to have mission statements and papers outlining eligibility and services. Thinking of identity, this not only reminded me of your prior discussions, but it started my head further down the rabbit hole. Besides my access technology certifications, my other background is in deaf-blind studies. While in study... We had discussions comparing clients who were deaf versus blind. The very commonly acknowledged note is that a group of blind people are referred to as a blind community, but a group of deaf people is referred to as a deaf 
culture. Even within the deaf population, there is a very clear difference between the deaf with a capital D versus deaf with a lower case. If a client refers to themselves with a capital D, that means they are culturally deaf, sharing a lot more than lack of hearing and language. The question then is, do we in the blindness community have any such division? There are always at least two sides to issues. How many times has ACB fought for accessible money to have the NFB disagree? I love how your show slash podcast not only brings up more current issues, but lets people contribute from all sides. So said, though, many people, including you, have strongly advocated for things, and many of us would find the community generally supportive as a whole. I certainly don't consider it a culture. I do, however, find it a fascinating distinction. This is a very interesting topic, Tiffany, and thank you for raising it. First, I am delighted, actually, to see identity first language really becoming the thing. I've noticed it a lot in the last few weeks from outside New Zealand. We've been writing disabled people, blind people, that sort of thing for at least 20 years in this country. But when I look at documentation from other countries and I see person first language, I actually find it jarring. It stops me in my tracks and it makes me think, oi, this is cumbersome. But equally, when I see identity first language emerging from other countries, I do a happy dance. There's a lot of reference in the UK now to disabled people, a lot of it. And I see in the US there's an increasing reference to disabled people. So I'm glad we are coming of age in that regard. Now, your culture question is something that I have talked to people about over the years. You know, when you get together at conventions and everybody's being all very learned and philosophizing about blindness things. And I've often said, do we have a blind culture in the same way that deaf people have a deaf culture? And some people have said to me, we do have a blind culture in the sense that a lot of people who attended schools for the blind sort of behave in a certain way. And I'm not sure whether that's true or not. Believe it or not, this is something I don't have a strong opinion on. Imagine that. Something Jonathan doesn't have a strong opinion on. So I'll put it out there. Do we have a blind culture? Is there even a blind community? Although I think a community is a bit different from culture. I think when you look at how people congregate on social media and discuss issues, ACB Radio, which I started for the American Council of the Blind 21 years ago nearly, has contributed to a sense of blind community. Podcasts like this, of course, which are very targeted at our blind community. I think they all help to contribute to a sense of community. What's the difference then between community and culture? How do you draw that distinction? What makes something a culture as opposed to a community? I know this is a little bit possibly airy-fairy and esoteric, but I know we have a lot of blind advocates listening to the show, people who've given these issues thought over many years so please share your perspective on this if you have one. And as I sit here thinking about this, one thing that immediately comes to my mind is that there are, maybe it's a bit of a tangent, I'm not sure, but I'll throw it out there in case people think it's relevant to this topic. There are definitely some blind people who consider themselves superior to other blind people. They take pride in their outsider status. For example, 
if they were to hear the discussion that I was having earlier about blind people and what it's considered acceptable to be excluded from, I can almost visualize it. They'll take on this very superior air. Their nose will be slightly in the air and they say, I'm not one of those whiny blind people. My friends tell me they forget I'm blind. And that's a big badge of honor for these people who don't perceive themselves as a part of the blind culture. My friends forget that I'm blind. And it's almost like if people think I'm sighted or treat me like I'm sighted, they treat me like I'm superior. If they remember I'm blind, then somehow that makes me lesser than them. And so they perhaps perceive a blind culture that they expressly don't want to be a part of. So there's that angle too. Thank you so much for raising this, Tiffany. And in the meantime, I shall give further contemplation to the middle initial, to the H. Hmm. Herbert? We're going to skip around a range of the topics that we've discussed today. And appropriately enough, we are going to do so with Rebecca Skipper. And she says, first, Apple's release of an inaccessible public beta for the watch is inexcusable. This is why I will not give up blindness-specific technology just yet. Web accessibility has improved marginally, so I'll give it a 5 out of 10. A neutral rating. Parts of Google Sheets, such as the ability to edit filters, is not as accessible as I'd like. Some freelancing sites require sighted assistance for some tasks. The site I use to pay my mortgage has an inaccessible capture. What would happen, Rebecca, if you just said to them, until you fix the capture, I ain't paying my mortgage? I wonder if that would focus their minds. Anyway, Rebecca continues, if you are a consumer who visits the same site every day, web accessibility might seem better. But it isn't if you are trying to work from home or paying bills due to the lack of awareness on the part of a lot of organizations. I use JAWS and Google Chrome most of the time now since Firefox crashes regularly. I also experience varying degrees of inaccessibility in iPhone apps. Uber is a prime example. The app changes so much that it is hard to efficiently schedule a ride. The map isn't accessible, and there's no option to inform the driver that you have a disability. In other words, the driver can tell the passenger if they have a disability, but I haven't seen this option under the user profile. Finding the driver is the worst part of getting an Uber, and I wish there were ways to make that process easier. I use Audible Manager on the PC and find that the download manager takes a long time to clean up files once the audio is downloaded. I have to close the download window from the task manager sometimes. In other words, the book downloads, but the download manager keeps saying that it is cleaning up the file. This is a minor issue. Thank you very much, Rebecca. I do have some thoughts to offer on your Uber comments that may be helpful. iOS has a feature called text replacements, and where Uber is concerned, I find this really helpful. I get picked up quite a bit from Uber when I go into my office, and I have a message that I always want to send the driver, which is essentially, hi, I'm a blind guy, I'm wearing a suit and tie, I'm carrying a white cane, and when you turn up, I won't be able to see you. So if you could please look for me and escort me to your vehicle, I would really appreciate that. Thank you. And I had a little smiley emoji. Now, what I've done with that long string of characters is I've gone into settings 
and then keyboard and then text replacements on my iPhone. And I've assigned that to a string of characters I will never use except in this situation. And in this case, I've got UBW for that purpose, which stands for Uber Work. So when my driver has been assigned, I quickly double tap on the little button that opens the window. And there's an option in the Uber app called Message Driver. So I double tap on the Message Driver button and an edit field pops up. And then I type UBW and a space. It's really important you do the space or it ain't going to work. UBW space, which you can do really easily one-handed from the virtual keyboard. And just by doing that, then my whole spiel, you know, hi, I'm a blind guy. And then I just press the send button. And it takes me all of about five seconds to do that and tell the driver to look for me. I also have a general one because my UBW one, by the way, also tells them exactly which building I'm outside and what building to look for me at. I have another one that's UBX, which is another string that I will never use except for this. And that stands for UberX. And it's generic because I'm not always going to be wearing a suit, believe it or not. And obviously, I'm not always going to be picked up from that building. So if I've gone shopping or somewhere, I've gone to an appointment and I want to be picked up, I order my Uber and then do the UBX in the message field. And that's just a generic message that says, hello, I'm a blind person carrying a white cane. Please look for me when you turn up because I won't be able to see you. And that really does work for me. I've had very few problems since adopting that strategy. Another thing you can do, of course, is use Ira. So you would need a plan, I believe, for this, but Ira integrates with the Uber API. And if I'm catching Ubers from airports or really crowded places where there might be several Ubers out there, then Ira can actually log into your Uber for you. You can actually give Ira permission to access your Uber account through the Uber API. And then they'll be able to see exactly where your vehicle is. And it's pretty cool. The IRA agent can tell you I was turning onto the street now, that kind of thing. And the IRA agent can guide you directly to the vehicle. So that is another fantastic way to use Uber. And if you're in a country that has Lyft as well, such as the United States, which I know, Rebecca, you are, it also works with Lyft. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large not too far for us to virtually travel for this one up the North Island a little bit to Michael Lloyd is in New Zealand and he says hi Jonathan to add a contribution to your conversation about taking notes on the iPhone. I am also finding as time moves on that I am using my iPhone much more for many basic tasks that I once would only have performed on my laptop. When you think about the combined amount of time we can spend every day taking notes or capturing text and then working out where to put it or how to find it again, it can soon add up. These basic tasks can easily become a mental challenge or frustration at the best of times, not to mention when you are in a potentially stressful situation where you need to show your ability to be at least as efficient and productive as everyone else, if not more so. Boy, do I relate to that, Michael. For example, a job interview or business meeting in a lecture theatre or learning environment or even when travelling or at a cafe. All of these situations and locations mean you need to be prepared for whatever happens. It's great that we can do this when in the calm, quiet environment of our home, but what about when we are interacting with the world in real time? Gaining the skills to input information 
via multiple methods is so powerful. If you can confidently use on-screen keyboard, external keyboard, Braille and voice activation slash dictation input options and know when to use each one of them to best suit a situation, then you are halfway there. I have become a huge fan of the Drafts app on my iPhone. Drafts, when opened, puts me straight into the edit area of a new draft, ready for me to start entering text. From a very basic user level, I can input my text and close the app. Then, to retrieve that draft slash note later, go back into the app and find that entry in the list or search for text within the draft. So at this point, it's similar to the notes app. If you look a bit further under the hood and find out what it is capable of doing, then you are armed with a very handy, versatile and efficient tool. For starters, you can assign tags to assist with finding and grouping your drafts. Where it gets cool is with its use of what they call actions. An action is a function or set of functions that you can perform on a draft, similar to using the share sheet, which you can also use, but much more. You can use many of the default actions that are already there to choose from or build your own. So, for example, you can send the draft as a text message or email to a pre-specified person or group of people, tweet, copy to the clipboard, use Markdown, send it to another app, append or prepend to a specific file on a cloud storage location such as iCloud, Dropbox or OneDrive, etc. Drafts also integrates well with Text Expander, which is another great efficiency tool for creating snippets, which is a similar idea to text replacements in iOS. But with Text Expander, you can do much more and it also works on Mac and PC, which is great. Drafts and Text Expander provide some fantastic templating and automation functionality. And if you put Siri shortcuts in the mix also, then the options are huge as to what you are capable of doing. Draft actions can also be assigned to keyboard commands, which is really handy if you use a Bluetooth keyboard. For example, I have created custom actions that when I press Ctrl-Shift-G, will perform a Google search using my draft text. Ctrl-Shift-O will save the draft as a file in a specific folder in OneDrive, so I can retrieve it using my work or home PC. Ctrl-Shift-N will save the draft text as an Apple Note. As I have set my iPhone Notes app to save to my Workplace Exchange account rather than on my iCloud, my iPhone Notes are synced nicely with Outlook on my work Windows laptop. So when I press Control number row 5 on my laptop, hey, there's my Notes from my iPhone. The opposite also applies. I can copy and paste something with my laptop into a note in Outlook and it then instantly appears in my iPhone Notes app. This is great for such times as when I have taken down directions of how to find a person's location or a product's name and description on the computer and I'm about to leave the office to meet them or check out that product at a store, etc. If you set your notes app to show on the lock screen, then you have instant access to that information. I also like the Apple Watch complication that allows me to dictate to drafts it doesn't time out in the same way that Siri does, so I have more time to think about what I want to say.
By using some of these tools, I am finding that my iPhone and laptop are becoming more of an extension or faithful companion to each other instead of working separately or in competition with each other. Keep up the good work. That is a fantastic message, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time to send such a thorough review of drafts. And I think the slogan that they use with drafts is the place where text starts, which is a really apt description of the app. I tried drafts a couple of years ago. Judy Dixon is a huge drafts fan. Hi, Judy. Hope you're out there. And she told me about the Apple Watch app and dictating into drafts and things. I don't know whether it was the mindset I was in at the time. I was changing jobs and things like that. I could not get into it, but I think that's me. And your description of all you are doing with drafts has inspired me to perhaps give it another try. I would be really keen to hear from others who are using drafts and how you are using it, some of the actions that you have put together, because I know a lot of blind people really do dig drafts. They like this thing a lot. So let us know how drafts works for you and how it integrates with your workflow. Thank you again, Mike. Here is a cornucopia of items from Tristan Clare. I love that word. It's mine, not hers, though. Uh, But she says, Hi, Jonathan. This is going to be a mixed bag of comments on different topics. See? Cornucopia. Mixed bag. I like cornucopia. I'll keep it as short as I can. First, in response to your comment about laptops with numpads, I have some good news for us weirdos who like a numpad on a laptop. There is at least one machine that spins into a tablet and also has a numpad. It's the HP Envy. I know this because I have one. It's a pretty nice machine, very lightweight and thin, with excellent audio. So, if you're a numpad user like me, then you can still have your numpad and your tablet computer too. HP makes some good hardware, don't they, Tristan? I've got a HP myself, but not the Envy. She continues, on the subject of phones versus computers, I'm definitely team phone. Although the experience of navigating the web using JAWS keystrokes is second to none, I don't think I could go back to life before Uber, Ira, Voice Dream Scanner, Netflix, Tap Tap C, and the ability to text, access my email, and catch up on social media, all while on the go. Smartphones have become so ubiquitous to sighted people, I feel that if I gave mine up now, I would be severely disadvantaged in most aspects of my life. On travel apps and navigation, I'm not a big user of GPS apps, but I do use Ira for navigating new areas, as traditional O&M providers work the same hours that I do, and I want to do my exploring on the weekend. When Sydney was in ISO, I think that means isolation. That's a very Australian sort of way to talk, isn't it? When Sydney was in ISO, (laughs) during the first wave of COVID-19, I used Ira to teach me the way to my local cafe. After about a week of walking there and back with Ira, I learnt the route and can do it now without assistance of any kind. So I get to support a local business, have decent coffee and my own time, thanks to Ira. Speaking of COVID-19, things here in Sydney aren't as bad as Victoria. So far, we average between about 10 and 15 cases a day. Obviously, one case is too many with this virus, but considering we are a city as large and populous as Melbourne, I feel like we're getting off pretty lightly. 
Currently, masks aren't mandatory here, but it's been strongly suggested that we use them on public transport, including Uber and in crowded places such as shopping centres. So far, most people are complying. The main points of transmission here seem to be bars and restaurants, where it's more difficult for people to mask up because you can't eat a meal through a mask. True, true. Finally, a few words about web accessibility. I don't remember websites being inaccessible when I first started using the web. It was certainly harder to navigate them before JAWS keystrokes and the virtual cursor, but I don't remember any websites in particular being impossible to read with a screen reader. Some were bloody difficult, especially those where you had to go into frames mode to read their content. Perhaps they would have been called inaccessible today, but the word inaccessible wasn't used in that context in the 90s. So I guess if we couldn't use a website back then, we just moved on to another one. The net wasn't quite as ubiquitous. There it is again. I don't think I've ever received an email with the word ubiquitous twice in the one email. (sighs) The net wasn't quite as ubiquitous back then. It was a fun place where you could look up information and send emails to your friends all over the world, not the productivity tool it is today. I think most websites are usable today, provided you're competent with more than one platform. I usually find that if a site is inaccessible on my PC, it isn't on my phone and vice versa. I very rarely encountered a website that was utterly and completely inaccessible across all platforms. The one time I did, I reported it to the company and they fixed it. So, if you're looking for any scented candles, diffuser or hand sanitizer, try Peppermint Grove because their stuff is nice and they're totally committed to web accessibility. Here's an interesting email from Carrie Francis. Well, all our emails to Mosin at large are interesting, aren't they? But Carrie says, I am currently taking piano lessons from a totally blind instructor through FaceTime. You should also know that I am deafblind. I use a hearing aid in my right ear and I am totally deaf on my left side. There is one problem which I am having. In order to learn my piano pieces, I use a tape recorder while in FaceTime. I press record on the recorder and my piano instructor plays each hand of the piece measure by measure from their piano with fingering instructions. The only problem is I cannot get a good clean copy of the recording. The notes can be difficult to hear at times. I have tried recording with voice memos to see if I can get a better quality recording. This has given me an even worse result. I was wondering, do you know of any way in which my instructor or myself could record the piano piece, save it in MP3 and send it to me via email using an iPhone slash iPad? Thank you for any help you could provide. I guess the trick to this is that if you're on FaceTime, it's going to be difficult to use another app on your iPhone. So if your instructor was to get some sort of portable recorder, that could record an MP3 and then email that to you, that could work. Another way to do this online would be to abandon FaceTime and use Zoom instead. You would need, one of you would need, I guess your your instructor would need, a Zoom premium account because then you could record the meeting in the cloud and then get the cloud recording and email it. 
So that would be another way around it, to use Zoom instead of FaceTime. Maybe others have some ideas. Good luck with your piano playing, Carrie. Maybe you can play some piano on the Mosin at large at some point, although it would, of course, have to be a non-copyrighted piece. And just before we go, a reminder that if you would like to sign the petition, it is at petition.mosin.org, link in the show notes, petition.mosin.org, and your sharing of it in various places where that would be appropriate is very much appreciated. Thanks for the support. To have your say on next week's episode, drop me an email, jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com, or call the listener line, 864-606-6736. That's 864-60-MOSIN in the United States. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Mosin at Large Podcast.